everybody. Welcome back to Hear Our Voices, where we give you resources and information about being homeless and not, and hopefully not becoming homeless in the future. Also, we tell people stories on this platform. So today we have Jacqueline Simone, and she's going to tell you a little bit about herself and what she does for the population of homeless people. So go on, Jacqueline. Hi, thanks so much for having me. No problem. Can you tell us what do you do on your everyday life to help out the homeless community? Like what do you do in, like for your job? Sure. So I'm a senior policy analyst at Coalition for the Homeless, which is currently celebrating our 40th year as an organization. So we are a, a nonprofit that provides both direct services to about 3,500 homeless and low-income New Yorkers every day. And then we use the lessons that we learn from those direct services to inform our advocacy work. So I am in the advocacy department of the coalition, which means that I am looking for uh, long-term, large-scale systemic changes to get at the root causes of many of the issues that homeless New Yorkers are encountering in their daily lives. That sounds so interesting. So what kind of policies do you get into and things like that? You say you do policies and stuff for your job. Yeah. yeah, so the coalition fundamentally believes that the driver of record homelessness in New York City is the lack of truly affordable housing. And the solution to our homelessness crisis is to actually create housing as a human right for all New Yorkers and, and frankly, all people, no matter where they are in, in the world. Um, we think that, you know, housing is really the foundation from which people can thrive, um, whether that means achieving their educational goals or their employment goals, or just having that sense of safety and security. You really do need a home of your own um, to, to live your your most successful and safest and most fulfilled life. So um, the policies that we advocate for at the coalition are based in that recognition of housing as a human right. So we address both, you know, homelessness prevention through ensuring that people who are at risk of homelessness are connected with supports and financial assistance so that they don't become homeless in the first place. So particularly during the pandemic, we've been advocating for um, extensions of the eviction moratoria as needed, as well as to ensure that people are um, able to access rental arrears payments as quickly as possible, particularly through some of the federal rental assistance funds that have been allocated to New York. Um, and we also, you know, played a large role in the creation of right to counsel and housing court for low-income tenants who are facing eviction, because we know that was a main driver of shelter entry, particularly among families. Um, then we know that shelter is uh, sometimes unavoidable for people. So we uphold the right to shelter in New York City. We are the court appointed monitor of the single adult shelter system. And a few years ago, the mayor also appointed us as 
the independent monitor of the family shelter system to ensure that people know what their rights are and that the shelters are adequately meeting their needs. Um, so we have monitors who are constantly going out and, and making sure that the shelters are, are appropriate when shelter is unavoidable for households. And then much of my work is focused on helping people move out of homelessness and into permanent housing as quickly as possible. So we know that unfortunately the average length of stay in shelters is well over a year on average for families. And that has significant ramifications for um, their school-aged children's education, for mental and emotional well-being, and for so many other aspects of lives. So we know that the right to shelter is vital, but it's not enough. And we need to move people out of shelters and into permanent housing much more quickly. So uh, in recent years, the coalition has led efforts to increase the amount of apartments in the mayor's affordable housing plan that are specifically set aside for homeless households so that people can move into those newly constructed affordable apartments much more quickly. Um, We've been calling for improvements in rent subsidy programs. So we would ideally want the federal government to fund Section 8 housing choice vouchers as an entitlement for all who need them. And we've been leading advocacy um, on the federal level for, for the Ending Homelessness Act of 2021, which would create Section 8 vouchers as an entitlement. But in the meantime, we also need the city and the state to use all of the resources at their disposal to improve current housing vouchers, such as by raising the maximum rent levels that could be covered by those vouchers and streamlining the process for people to move into permanent housing much more quickly. All of those things sound very great. Um, I have a question because I can't put another podcast so can you tell me the difference between FEPS, City FEPS, um, the right, they have one for DV. Do you know that one about DV? They couldn't explain exactly um, about that. And the one, is another one stay, like they want you to stay in your home and they'll yeah. pay your rent for that. How do you, can you explain those, that operation for me? And then after I'm gonna ask you a little bit about NYCHA and um, Section 8, if you could answer those questions too. Yeah, so as I mentioned, we know that the gold standard for helping people move out of shelters and into housing would be rent assistance for everyone who needs it. And the Section 8 Housing Choice Voucher Program is has been around for a long time and it's been proven to reduce homelessness and overcrowding. But because the federal government has rationed, I apologize for the for the noise in the background. There are some dogs that are being very loud. <laughs> no problem. Um, <clears throat> but because the federal government has rationed the housing choice voucher program or section eight, the city and the state have tried to fill in the gaps with their own rent subsidy programs. And as a result, we have sort of this alphabet soup of different voucher programs. So when the de Blasio administration originally took office, they um, created a whole suite of programs called, you know, LINK, and there were 
bunch of different versions of link um, with different numbers. They had SEPs for single adults. They had SOTA. They they had a whole bunch of different programs that were eventually consolidated, believe in 2018, into a single city program called City FAPS. Although we do still have other programs such as such as SOTA, which are slightly different. Um, and City FAPS can be used for people who are at risk of homelessness or for people who are currently in shelters and need to move out. And there are specific eligibility criteria that I won't go through in depth, um, but that it's it's essentially, you know, one program that's kind of complicated eligibility criteria because it is the consolidation of a whole bunch of other vouchers that the city had created at the start of the de Blasio administration. Now at the state level, we also have a program called FEPS, F-H-E-P-S, that has slightly different eligibility criteria. And actually, if you are, um, you know, trying to get a voucher and you're in shelter, one of the main criteria uh, is that if you are eligible for state FEPS, that's what you have to get. You can't get both city FAPS and state FAPS, and you can't get city FAPS if you're actually eligible for state FAPS. Um, So there are distinct eligibility criteria. And uh, again, there's uh, state FAPS that can be used for people who are at risk of homelessness or who are already homeless, but um, it's, it's all very complicated. And much of the work for determining eligibility for these programs does happen sort of behind the scenes. So a person in shelter might not even know about all the different programs and know, you know, why they got one voucher versus another. Um, but but again, I think the, the bottom line is that all of these sort of complicated programs have just been created to fill in the gaps for inadequate support from the federal government. If everyone had a Section 8 voucher, that would be much easier to, to understand and would be a more streamlined process overall. So you might think it's a lot to tell people, but I do want to understand the one where people go who are not in the shelter yet, but I think it was to the city FAPS that, can you explain a little bit about how to qualify for that, if you don't mind? Yeah, let me just, because I don't want to misspeak, so I'm pulling up the um, information. So there's city FAPS for people who are at risk of entering shelter. Yes. And... <clears throat> To be eligible for um, that type of city FEPS, the the basic requirements are that households must have a gross income at or below 200% of the federal poverty level, and they must meet one of five criteria. So the first would be the household includes someone who served in the military or is it and is at risk of homelessness, or the household has an unexpired link city FEPS or SEPS letter, which were some of those older programs that I talked about at the time of city FEPS eligibility is requested. That was more so an issue um, right after the programs were consolidated, not so much anymore. Or number three, the household gets link six or pathway home benefits and would be eligible for city FEPS if they were in a DHS or HRI shelter. So those were sort of time limited benefits and and it's sort of a continuation of their benefits. Or number four, the household was referred by a city FEPS qualifying program and DSS determined that city FEPS was needed to avoid shelter entry. So that might be, for example, if someone had called up home base because they were at risk of eviction that's how that process could be started. 
Or number five, the household is facing eviction in court or was evicted in the past year. And they either include someone who was previously in a DHS shelter, or they include someone who is an active adult protective services case, or is in a designated community guardianship program, or they live in a rent controlled apartment and would use city FEPS to stay in that apartment. So this is kind of complicated, right? Because that's a whole bunch of different categories of people who are at risk of homelessness who all might be eligible for city FEPS or they might not be because it's, I think most listeners might be sitting there thinking, okay, do I, do I hit all of these criteria or any of these criteria? It's confusing, right? So I will say that the Department of Social Services has some pretty useful FAQs on their website. And if you want to get links to any of those details, you can go to our website, coalitionforthehomeless.org. And we have a section called Get Help, or sorry, it's now I Need Help. And there's links to a bunch of these resources and FAQs. We make sure it's the most updated information available. Um, And I think especially the I Need Help and I Need Housing section is really useful for people to see an overview of the different types of housing programs. Um, but if someone is, is at risk of homelessness and thinks they might qualify for city FEPS, they should visit one of the Department of Social Services nonprofit service providers. Um, and they would do that by visiting either home base or a housing assistance provider office. So to find out what your closest home base office is, you could call 311 or look up online. And there are different nonprofits that are contracted with DSS to do uh, screenings for these various programs. They might also say, okay, you might not be eligible for city FEPS, but here's what you really need is a one-time grant to help you pay off your rental arrears and, and they'll facilitate that. So it, because everyone's experience with housing and security is so different, um, I do think that it's it's helpful for people to connect with the nonprofit home-based providers in the community, as well as other nonprofits that do homelessness prevention work, to really look at one-on-one with their with their specific circumstances and see what is the most appropriate option for them. That's understandable. That's understandable. So. What else in your office you could tell us about that you do with the homeless population on an everyday basis? What's what's like the most popular thing what comes up probably on an everyday basis? Yeah, so we, you know, my my colleagues, especially who do direct case management are always very busy with a variety of issues because we, like I said, we serve about 3,500 people every day through our programs. And- one of our cornerstone programs at the coalition is called our crisis intervention program. And this is a program that prior to the pandemic was a walk-in service. Five days a week, people could uh, just walk into our office in lower Manhattan on a first come first serve basis and meet one-on-one with a caseworker who could help them with you know, benefits applications, uh, questions about how to access shelter, or for example, if someone was repeatedly being found ineligible for shelter at PATH, or um, those are the kind of things that we could help people out with. And during the pandemic, because we didn't want people just coming into our office in person, we shifted to a, a crisis intervention emergency hotline. And 
we can still provide those same services, but instead of coming to our office, you can call the hotline over the phone. And that number is 1-888-358-2384. Again, it's 1-888-358-2384. And that's the best way to sort of be connected to the coalition services. So um, you know, lately we've been dealing with a lot of requests for reasonable accommodations for single adults who are being moved out of hotels and into congregate shelters again. Yeah. Um, at various times, we've we've seen many people who are families who have been denied shelter at uh, at Path, or people who need help with, you know, knowing what their rights are or how to connect to some of these benefit programs. Um, it's really a, a wide range of services that we offer there. And then we, we have, you know, we operate 11 direct service programs and some of them are geared specifically toward families and children. So for example, we have two programs specifically for homeless kids. One is Bound for Success, which is an after-school program and summer day camp that we run out of two shelters. Um, so it, it's only open to people who are residing in those facilities. But I think if, if families have, might be in one of those two shelters and they might hear about Bound for Success and are interested in getting involved, they're, they're more than welcome to, to talk to our staff who are on site there. Um, and then we have a summer sleepaway camp for homeless kids in Harriman oh, State wow. Park. That's it nice. is, yeah. It's it's been around for a couple decades. I can attest because I have visited the campsite that it is the campsite of your dreams. Um, I never went to a campsite this nice when I was a kid. It's called Camp Homeward Bound, and it's in Harriman State Park. So homeless kids are welcome to, you know, there's there's just a, a very brief application process because we want to manage capacity, for example. Um, but each summer, you know, a, a few hundred homeless children are able to get away from their shelters and just get out in nature, go swimming in a lake, and also have the academic enrichment component that many people need because as we know, is often the case, it's very challenging for homeless students to keep up with their stably housed peers in school. So this is, you know, giving kids the socialization and the, the entertainment that they need in the summer, but also making sure that they have that academic enrichment component. So those are all programs that, you know, those are just a few of the programs that we run at the coalition. And if people are interested in learning more or making sure that they're on the list for next summer, for example, for Camp Homeward Bound, they That's should so definitely cool. visit our website, coalitionforthehomeless.org. I would like to work there. That sounds so cool because obviously I'm too old to go into a camp, but it sounds amazing. Like you guys are really not just trying to, you know, throw money at a problem and look the other way. You're really trying to get with the families and help the kids kind of be stable in, a, in an unperfect situation. That's really nice, actually. Yeah, really I think nice. I think the strength of the coalition is that we do both direct services and advocacy. So, you know, we're meeting people's immediate needs through our, through our programs every single day. We're giving people food, we're giving people job training, we're, we're making sure homeless kids have a place to go during the day. But then we're also thinking bigger picture, how do we actually address the root causes of homelessness so we can, you know, not have as many people lining up for food every night at our food vans and how can we make it so that there aren't, 
you know, tens of thousands of homeless children who, who need these additional services? How essentially can we put the coalition out of business by reducing the tragedy of homelessness? And that's, that's my job, essentially. That's so nice. So the food bank is open every night? Yeah, so that's our, our Grand Central Food Program is the nation's largest nightly mobile soup kitchen. And we've been around since the 1980s. So we start at St. Bart's Church in Midtown Manhattan. And then we have three vans that make stops at designated intersections in Upper Manhattan, Lower Manhattan, and the Bronx. And that is available seven nights a week, 365 nights a year. We've never missed a night of operation even on, you know, 9-11 during Hurricane Sandy, uh, oh, at the height wow. of the pandemic, our bands were out there. So um, if someone is, uh, is unable to provide food for their, for their household, we know that many people are at risk of homelessness and are paying so much on rent that they can't afford food always. They're more than welcome to line up at one of our food van stops and get a hot meal. Um, those stops are listed on our website because, uh, you know, people can see what time and what location we will be at. But that's something that it's really important to be consistent with because especially when a lot of other places had to close down during the pandemic, we yeah. were consistently there and we're distributing both food and PPE and vital information for an incredibly uh, vulnerable community. Oh my God, that is so awesome. Like, I'm just in awe, like listening to what you're telling me. I did not know this information. This is so remarkable that um people who are pe people think that less of is getting help that they need mm -hmm. and people are not like looking down and saying oh this and that but they're really helping the people and that's amazing really amazing i love it i love every like the, the summer camp the soup kitchen going through even when we're, the city is going like kind of in a lockdown they still yeah. are out there helping that's amazing yeah that's really i think amazing. You know, I've been really in awe of my colleagues who do our direct services as well, because they, you know, it's been an incredibly difficult time for all of us and their, their commitment to serving the most vulnerable New Yorkers has been really inspiring. Um, you know, we, we really had to shift very quickly to make sure we could still meet the needs of homeless New Yorkers. So we have one of our programs that is uh, geared toward homeless women is our first step job training program. And this program in the pre-pandemic times was a you know several week long job training program where women were coming to our office, getting computer skills, interview prep, um, getting placed at internships at employers across the city and getting help uh, entering the workforce as well. Um, and during the pandemic, we figured out how to shift that instruction into uh, an online classroom instead. And that was that was really challenging and making sure that we were still accessible to some of the people with the, the greatest needs, people who might not have consistent internet access at home, for example, yeah. has been, it, it's been a challenge. But, um, but I think that the way that we were able to be so flexible and still serve so many people on a daily basis, even at the height of the pandemic has been so important because we know that the pandemic has really just exacerbated so many of these underlying economic issues, particularly for Black and Latinx New Yorkers. The thing about it, I have so much other questions to ask. I still want to forget them. I'm trying to keep it in my head. The thing about it, we had a problem way before this, yeah. which I feel like it was big, 
and it got it got worse in the pandemic but people didn't really see it until the pandemic happened people was like yeah we have homeless people and they kind of forgot about it until mm -hmm. the pandemic kind of forced them to almost be homeless or be homeless themselves that they realized oh there yeah there really is a problem in america in the world like a, there's a yeah. lot of homeless people out here who some people that some people just don't like to be in the shelter so they stay out on the street but some people really are out here being homeless in the shelter and it's like they're almost forgotten about yeah and and this as because of the pandemic kind of pushed it to the forefront that we have a lot of problems and we need help with it um yeah. another question that i have is with the crisis number right if you don't have a cell phone how does that really work because i know some people some people just might not have it i don't know if the obama phones are still out or things like that so can they try to walk in or how or just try to get a phone to call the crisis number or how does that work yeah so we found that many of the homeless new yorkers we serve do have some form of, of a phone it might not be a smartphone but it might be like you said through um, government assistance programs but okay. we also during the pandemic were at times we uh, were distributing phones to some people. Um, and we were also distributing cash cards and things like that to help people meet those basic needs. You know, as we're, um, I don't even want to say entering the next phase of the pandemic, because things seem to be changing every single day. But we're also having conversations about how we might be able to um, you know, continue doing outreach and, and meetings with people in our office in a safe way that's protecting our staff as well of the, as the homeless New Yorkers that we want to serve who might not be as comfortable with technology. So those conversations are ongoing. But, but yeah, I mean, to, to what you said earlier, we knew that many of these things were challenges and historic challenges even prior to the pandemic. I've been saying for years that tens of thousands of New Yorkers are one missed paycheck away from homelessness. And then when the pandemic struck, so many people missed a paycheck and have found themselves on the brink of homelessness. So I do think that maybe, maybe prior to the pandemic, New Yorkers had become almost inured to the suffering of our neighbors. And, and I hope that the, the horrific experience of the past year and a half have maybe waken, woken people up and made them realize that we need to do more to help homeless people. That is so true. So you were saying about PATH earlier. I know you don't work at PATH itself, but I, all right, I was in a shelter and I interviewed somebody the other day and the stuff that she said she needed for PATH was much different than mm -hmm. me. And she came out this year, this year out of the shelter. And I came out in 2018. Obviously, by those times, things could definitely change. Mm -hmm. But um, she told me, first to start off, documentation. What do you need to bring in? And do you need five years of living information or do you need two years? Did it change from, because you've been, been in for a long time, so you would know the answer. Did it change from 2018 until now? How much years you would need to bring into PATH or things like that? I think it, the, I believe you're referring to the um, housing history documentation. Yes. Yeah, so I think that's been two years worth of housing history documentation for a while. Um, I don't remember it being five years at any point, um, but I think one one problem that we've we encounter often is that people don't always know what their rights are when they're applying for shelter at PATH. And it's a very confusing process with so much bureaucracy. Yeah. And sometimes people are also told misinformation that um that deters them from accessing the shelter that they really need so that's the kind of thing where 
We often provide services through our crisis program for people who have questions about the PATH process or who are continually found ineligible because we know that the eligibility rates at PATH are very low. Um, and many people are only found eligible for shelter after submitting six or more applications, which indicates that that person probably needed shelter the first time they walked in the door at PATH, but exactly. we're encountering hurdle after hurdle. So like I said, our, our crisis program helps people, you know, case by case, gather their documents, uh, prove their eligibility if they truly don't have anywhere else to go. But then my job as policy analyst is also speaking with the decision makers of the Department of Homeless Services and talking to elected officials about these issues because so many people don't realize how traumatic and challenging the PATH shelter application process is for families. And they don't realize when, when they look at the eligibility rates that those are human beings who are stuck in this bureaucratic cycle. So, uh, you know, we're also constantly working with, with other advocates and with elected officials and administration officials to try to improve that process and make it more responsive to the people's needs. That is so true because when I was interviewing her, she said, oh, they told me five years. And she's also another YouTuber. And um, so she talks to a lot of homeless people, too, or who are going, who are usually mother, like, you know, families. And mm -hmm. she said they told her, oh, they tell her people that she talked to also five years. I'm like, hold up. <laughs> I've never heard five years. And I've been denied so many times from past um, before I actually got in. And every time they told me, like, the first time they didn't tell me anything. Because I went there 2014 when my daughter was born when I was pregnant. And they didn't tell me what I needed. And they mm -hmm. told me because I had a place to go because I wasn't evicted the first time, I couldn't get in, which was a lie. <laughs> but I didn't know my rights. So I just kind of wandered out in the world until somebody helped me out eventually and put me in their place. But um, I didn't know what to do. And if I would have known what I know now, I could have definitely got in the first time and had no problems, to be honest. Because yeah. all I would have to get is a letter from my landlord saying that, she doesn't want me in there anymore. And they would have went to the house or called her and that would have been the end of the story. But I didn't know that. So I was, it took me 2016, I went back because I ended up getting um, a renting a room. But I had to go back to the shelter again because me and the lady weren't getting along. Because it was a three bedroom. Two of the people were there, including my daughter, me and my daughter. So it was like, you know, it was four of us secondly in the apartment. It was a lot. But I'm, I'm really qualified that i'm i'm so sorry you had to go through that it's unfortunately so common with this confusion on top of you know the trauma of not having housing to have to deal with all of that is just inexcusable frankly and um you know i always say that there's there's the policies there's what's in writing you know the steps that people need to take to enter shelter for example and then there's yeah. how those policies are actually implemented on the ground and sometimes there is a big disconnect like for right. example shelter uh, path intake staff are supposed to be helping people gather the documents and if someone is having issues they're supposed to they're supposed to explain the process but does that happen on the ground no i mean that's that's <laughs> not right and there are probably some people who are wonderful and helpful people who are working at path um but we also know that there's a lot of confusion that happens at path and and we need to, you know, improve the policies and then also make sure that they're being implemented on the ground in a trauma-informed way. Um, you know, I 
I remember learning in school about something called a hardship mechanism, which is an actual intentional tool that is created in many of our uh, social services benefits to intentionally deter people who maybe don't really, really need the benefit by making the process to access the benefit as challenging as possible with the assumption that some people will just walk away. And when you look at how challenging it is for people to enter the shelter system at PATH, I do think that that's some of what's happening. They know that they're they're wrongfully turning away some people, but if you want to reduce the shelter census, you could do it either by truly connecting people to housing and truly preventing homelessness, or you could just make it much harder to get into shelter. And I worry that, that some of that is certainly happening on the ground at PATH. It is. Um... I was the second, the second the second time I went try to go to path like 2007 18 what it doesn't matter 16 whatever and the guy told me the reason like mind you I was seeing a lot of people before I got to this one person mm-hmm. and he said you know the reason why you're getting the guy was telling me why I was getting denied I was just getting denied over and over and he said the reason why you're getting denied is because you didn't bring in um everything for housing and I'm like I don't I don't understand what do you mean he said, you need to have two years of this information. At the time, I didn't know that. So I'm like, that's simple. All I have to literally do is print something off from Capital One, because that's what I brought in, because it has your, um, your address on your, your bill. And mm-hmm. that's it. That one simple thing. All I have to go to the library or go anywhere to print something out. That's simple to get me in there. And nobody was telling me except this one person. Mm-hmm. It should be as you come in, you tell people what, to, like, what they need to like get through the process even faster. And people right. will be so much more happier and not so depressed when they get there and just worried, am I gonna get through? It's it's really annoying to be honest. Yeah, and it's, you know, that, I mean, I know that you're a, a very intelligent person and you you speak and read English. And I think, you know, imagine how much more confusing this process is for people who don't speak English as their first language or people right. who, have a disability that makes it hard for them to to um, absorb information or to read written materials, for example. So, I think those are too often the people who are falling through the cracks. And you know, like the notices are supposed to tell you what you need to do to reapply and why you were found ineligible. But again, the way in which some of these this information is communicated to people is often lacking, and that's where the coalition can. Um, can sort of intervene and help walk people through that process. I wish I knew about the coalition at the time. So my process could have been so much smoother. <laughs> to yes. be honest, it would have been so much better for me if I knew that somebody was out there to help me. I knew about the, um, they have a thing for the fair hearing. Even yeah. though I honestly probably should have went to it, I just couldn't bother. I was like, I just feel like they're all, in my mind, it was just all connected to work against me. That's how it felt. Because mm-hmm. like, it seemed like nobody wanted to help me. So I didn't even go to any of the fair hearings they told me to go to, and I should have. But it was just so exhausting. Taking your luggage, having the, it's just, you have to have your kid there. They can't go to daycare while this process, because the process does take all day. So the child goes to daycare, they still have to go pick it up. And it's like, it's just, it can be a lot. <laughs> it can be a lot. So how, 
yeah. One thing that with PATH that like during the pandemic, they have made some changes okay. regarding whether people need to go back to PATH, whether their kids need to be at PATH during the applications, you know, whether they can just stay in their current unit and reapply from there if they're found ineligible. And we're really hoping that some of those reforms, even though they were made in this crisis moment, can be continued because they found out that they, they are able to to change some of these processes and make them less traumatic for people. And I hope that even after the pandemic is over, that, they, that they're able to continue with some of that flexibility. Because as you said, lugging your, your child and your belongings to and from PATH constantly and being swept up in this bureaucracy is, is so stressful for people. Right. Yeah, people were telling me that that part of it did change for them. And I, as you said, I hope it stays um, like that when everything hopefully settles down, hopefully mm-hmm. next year or so, with everything going up and down, I don't really know. I'm just on the roller coaster and trying to hang on to the ride and hopefully I don't fall off. So <laughs> that's pretty much on that. Um, so I want to ask you a little bit about disabled people and how is the services that you do kind of help them? I know, as you said before, people with certain disabilities or even can't, can't read in English or can't read or take information properly, how can your services help them kind of, you know, get through a little bit better? Yeah, so several years ago, we worked with the Legal Aid Society on a a lawsuit called Butler versus City of New York, because what we had found is that many of the people who were coming to the coalition for assistance and many people we met when we were doing proactive outreach were people with disabilities whose needs were not being accommodated in the shelter system. So whether that be people applying at PATH or people who were put in inaccessible shelter units once they were in shelters, people who, you know, didn't, weren't receiving um, communications in a way that was accessible to them, those sorts of issues. So we, we brought a lawsuit and we reached a settlement a few years ago with the city that requires DHS to make the system accessible for people with disabilities. So as part of this, they are reviewing um, the physical layout of the system as a whole and making sure that they have sufficient accessible capacity to accommodate projected levels of people who have disabilities who, who might become homeless in the future. Um, they, they need to change many of their policies and procedures and ensure that they are being communicated effectively to to people who are seeking services from DHS. And it's an ongoing settlement process where where they're they're really overhauling the system. Um, And because we have the the Butler settlement and because we also have this very low barrier crisis intervention program, uh, people who have disabilities who feel that they are not being accommodated in the shelter system are more than welcome to reach out to the coalition and and meet with one of our advocates either over the phone or you know in non-pandemic times in person to and we can help them request what's called a reasonable accommodation that can you know maybe that's moving to another shelter unit, somewhere that's physically accessible to them. Maybe it's ensuring that they're getting interpretation services, um, whatever, whatever their individual issue is, there should be a, you know, an individualized assessment of their needs and we can help with that. That sounds awesome. That definitely sounds awesome. So I want to get a little bit back to what you said before it. You said a lot of things, trying to get everything in so people can really learn and get the information. 
So they, you said they have a lot of different, they have city fabs, they have fabs, we talked about that. Um, we talked a little bit about section eight, a little bit, and then NYCHA. What other programs can people get into for housing in New York City? If whether if they're documented or not documented, they have different programs for that. And what can you tell, tell us about it? Yeah, so there's also um, the SODA program, which is for people whose incomes are, are higher than, than if they're eligible for city FEPs, for example. Um, and that program is a little bit different in that it provides one year of rental support, and then people are sort of on their own after that first year. Um, that program could be used either inside New York City or outside New York City. And it's for people who, you know, have uh, the ongoing ability to pay after that one year subsidy is up. Um, there's also, you know, programs like the uh, supportive housing, which is permanent housing with on-site support services. They tend to be geared toward people who have additional challenges. So people who have mental health needs, substance use disorder, people who um, sometimes it's for survivors of domestic violence, for example. And there's a consolidated application process for supportive housing called the 2010E that people could ask their shelter caseworkers about, or we could help out with the coalition um, if they have questions about their eligibility for supportive housing. People can also uh, apply to affordable housing that's subsidized by the city through the, the housing lottery system. And there are special units that are set aside specifically for people coming out of shelters, but there's also a chance that someone could win one of the housing lotteries for income targeted housing if they create their own housing connect account. Um, and, and what I recommend to people generally is that because we have such a, a dearth of affordable housing, we just don't have enough units for everyone who needs it. I encourage people to explore as many housing options as they might be eligible for. So sometimes I hear people who say, oh, well, I have a city FEPS voucher, so I'm not going to bother creating a housing connect profile. And I say, no, 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 do all of the above because you don't know what is going to eventually be the pathway to help you get out of shelter. So anything that you're eligible for, you should be exploring as a potential option. Um, you know, there, we also know that the wait lists for NYCHA and Section 8 are so long, again, because we are sort of rationing assistance and instead of providing enough for everyone who's eligible. So even if you're on a wait list for, for one type of housing, you should still be exploring if you might be eligible for another type of housing as well. Um, but the bottom line is that we also need to expand the supply of affordable housing and make sure that everyone who needs a rental assistance voucher gets one so that we can help people move out of shelters much more quickly. Yeah, and if you have a Housing Connect and a FEPS voucher, in some cases you can use it to do it. Mm -hmm. I know somebody who's done it. So you yep. not, might need one and the other to kind of help you out. So it's always good right. idea to do all the options as she said, so we will be able to you'll be able to be successful in your housing endeavors. Do you have any last word for the people who are listening? I would say, um, you know, I think it's so important for people who are experiencing homelessness and housing insecurity to be involved in the advocacy space, because I, I understand the system is sort of built to beat people down, right? Where they're so, um, 
stressed and so focused on their individual, you know, paperwork and the bureaucracy that it can really be demoralizing and disempowering for people. But there's so much exciting activism going on right now, again, especially with, with the way in which the pandemic has shed a light on how inadequate our current social safety net and our housing systems are, that I would encourage people, if you have the capacity, um, to learn more about some of the advocacy work that's happening. Talk to your elected officials about what you're going through and how they can help make it better. Because you know, it's one thing for me to be meeting with elected officials and telling them that things are, are messed up and need to be fixed, but it's so much more powerful for someone with firsthand experience of those issues to be sharing that. And your story is powerful. And um, if we're going to have systemic changes, we really need all hands on deck to call for these large scale solutions. So um, Coalition for the Homeless has a lot of advocacy. Many other organizations also are constantly uh, rallying around the need for more permanent housing. So um, I do some research and, and key into one of those groups and make your voice heard because you matter and you're an expert on homelessness much more than uh, any of us who, who do this as our job. Um, and, and I just think that it's really important for those voices to be amplified. I definitely second that. I feel like a lot of people probably feel like, especially if they were in homeless right now, they probably feel ashamed. Like when I was homeless, I felt ashamed. Like I could not, I just couldn't believe how I got here. I just couldn't believe how this could happen to me. But I know everything happens for a reason. And I know one day I was going to be able to help others with my story. Um, we need more people out here who are brave to say this did happen to me and I'm out of it or that I'm in the shelter right now and I know I'm going to get out of it. So I yeah. think we need more faces and more voices out there to really help make us be louder. Because I could say, I need help. But for 30 people, 100 people, 1,000 people saying, I need help. And we all went through the same system. And granted, we had different paths. But the point is that we went through the same system. We were telling you the system is broken. It's much yeah. louder, louder than me saying it by myself. So if yeah. you hear me and you have been through this experience and you definitely want to help, as she said, go out look up some research, join something to help make this process. It might not be easier for you because you, you, it's already passed, but for somebody who's coming behind you and help our neighbors. It's always good to help your neighbors. So guys, thank you to come, for coming to hear our voices. Thank you for listening. And I hope to hear you in the next one. See you yeah, next thank time. You so much. No problem. Bye. Thank you for coming. Bye. Bye.